A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 35. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 12, Philae, Part 2. Later on, when we returned to Philae from the Second Cataract, the writer devoted the best part of three days to making a careful study of a corner of this portico, patiently matching those subtle variations of tint, and endeavouring to master the secret of their combination. The annexed woodcut can do no more than reproduce the forms. Architecturally this court is unlike any we have yet seen, being quite small and open to the sky in the centre, like the atrium of a Roman house. The light thus admitted glows overhead, lies in a square patch on the ground below, and is reflected upon the pictured recesses of the ceiling. At the upper end, where the pillars stand too deep, there was originally an intercolumnar screen. The rough sides of the columns show where the connecting blocks have been torn away. The pavement, too, has been pulled up by treasure-seekers, and the ground is strewn with broken slabs and fragments of shattered cornice. These are the only signs of ruin, signs traced not by the finger of time, but by the hand of the spoiler. So fresh, so fair, is all the rest, that we are fain to cheat ourselves for a moment into the belief that what we see is work not marred, but arrested. Those columns, depend on it, are yet unfinished. That pavement is about to be relayed. It would not surprise us to find the masons here to-morrow morning, or the sculptor, with mallet and chisel, carrying on that band of lotus-buds and bees. Far more difficult it is to believe that they all struck work forever some two and twenty centuries ago. Here and there, where the foundations have been disturbed, one sees that the columns are constructed of sculptured blocks, the fragments of some earlier temple, while at a height of about six feet from the ground, a Greek cross cut deep into the side of the shaft stamps upon each pillar the seal of Christian worship. For the cops, who choked the colonnades and courtyards with their hovels, seized also on the temples. Some they pulled down for building material, others they appropriated. We can never know how much they destroyed, but two large convents on the eastern bank a little higher up the river, and a small basilica at the north end of the island, would seem to have been built with the magnificent masonry of the southern quay, as well as with blocks taken from a structure which once occupied the southeastern corner of the great colonnade. As for this beautiful painted portico, they turned it into a chapel. A little rough-hewn niche in the east wall, and an overturned credence-table fashioned from a single block of limestone, mark the site of the chancel. The Arabs, taking this last for a gravestone, have pulled it up, according to their usual practice, in search of treasure buried with the dead. On the front of the credence-table, and over the niche which some unskilled but pious hand has decorated with rude Byzantine carvings, the Greek cross is again conspicuous. The religious history of Philae is so curious that it is a pity it should not find an historian. It shared with Abydos and some other places the reputation of being the burial-place of Osiris. It was called the Holy Island. Its very soil was sacred. None might land upon its shores, or even approach them too nearly, without permission. To obtain that permission and perform the pilgrimage to the tomb of the god was to the pious Egyptian what the Mecca pilgrimage is to the pious Mussulman of today. 
the most solemn oath to which he could give utterance was by him who sleeps in Philae. When and how the island first came to be regarded as the resting-place of the most beloved of the gods does not appear, but its reputation for sanctity seems to have been of comparatively modern date. It probably rose into importance as Abydos declined. Herodotus, who is supposed to have gone as far as Elephantine, made minute inquiry concerning the river above that point, and he relates that the cataract was in the occupation of Ethiopian nomads. He, however, makes no mention of Philae or its temples. This omission on the part of one who, wherever he went, sought the society of the priests and paid particular attention to the religious observances of the country, shows that either Herodotus never got so far, or the island had not yet become the home of the Osirian mysteries. Four hundred years later, Diodorus Siculus describes it as the holiest of holy places, while Strabo, writing about the same time, relates that Abydos had then dwindled to a mere village. It seems possible, therefore, that at some period subsequent to the time of Herodotus and prior to that of Diodorus or Strabo, the priests of Isis may have migrated from Abydos to Philae, in which case there would have been a formal transfer not only of the relics of Osiris, but of the sanctity which had attached for ages to their original resting-place nor is the motive for such an exodus wanting. The ashes of the god were no longer safe at Abydos. Situate in the midst of a rich country on the high road to Thebes, no city south of Memphis lay more exposed to the hazards of war. Cambyses had already passed that way. Other invaders might follow. To seek beyond the frontier that security which might no longer be found in Egypt would seem therefore to be the obvious course of a priestly guild devoted to its trust. This, of course, is mere conjecture, to be taken for what it may be worth. The decadence of Abydos coincides, at all events, with the growth of Philae, and it is only by help of some such assumption that one can understand how a new site should have suddenly arisen to such a height of holiness. The earliest temple here, of which only a small propylon remains, would seem to have been built by the last of the native pharaohs, Nectanebo II, B.C. 361, but the high and palmy days of Philae belonged to the period of Greek and Roman rule. It was in the time of the Ptolemies that the Holy Island became the seat of a sacred college and the stronghold of a powerful hierarchy. Visitors from all parts of Egypt, travellers from distant lands, court functionaries from Alexandria charged with royal gifts, came annually in crowds to offer their vows at the tomb of the god. They have cut their names by hundreds all over the principal temple, just like tourists of today. Some of these antique autographs are written upon and across those of preceding visitors, while others, palimpsests upon stone, so to say, having been scratched on the yet unsculptured surface of doorway and pylon, are seen to be older than the hieroglyphic texts, which were afterwards carved over them. These inscriptions cover a period of several centuries, during which time successive Ptolemies and Caesars continued to endow the island. Rich in lands, in temples, in the localization of a great national myth, the sacred college was yet strong enough in A.D. 379 to oppose a practical resistance to the edict of Theodosius. At a word from Constantinople, the whole land of Egypt was forcibly Christianized. 
Priests were forbidden under pain of death to perform the sacred rites. Hundreds of temples were plundered. Forty thousand statues of divinities were destroyed at one fell swoop. Meanwhile the Brotherhood of Philae, entrenched behind the cataract in the desert, survived the degradation of their order and the ruin of their immemorial faith. It is not known with certainty for how long they continued to transmit the hereditary privileges, but two of the above-mentioned votive inscriptions show that, so late as A.D. 453, the priestly families were still in occupation of the island, and still celebrating the mysteries of Osiris and Isis. There even seems reason for believing that the ancient worship continued to hold its own till the end of the sixth century, at which time, according to an inscription at Kalabshe, of which I shall have more to say hereafter, Silco, king of all the Ethiopians, himself apparently a Christian, twice invaded Lower Nubia, where God, he says, gave him the victory, and the vanquished swore to him by their idols to observe the terms of peace. There is nothing in this record to show that the invaders went beyond Tafa, the ancient Tafis, which is twenty-seven miles above Philae, but it seems reasonable to conclude that so long as the old gods yet reigned in any part of Nubia, the island sacred to Osiris would maintain its traditional sanctity. At length, however, there must have come a day when, for the last time, the tomb of the god was crowned with flowers, and the lamentations of Isis were recited on the threshold of the sanctuary. And there must have come another day when the cross was carried in triumph up those painted colonnades, and the first Christian mass was chanted in the precincts of the heathen. One would like to know how these changes were brought about, whether the old faith died out for want of worshippers, or was expelled with clamor and violence. But upon this point history is vague, and the graffiti of the time are silent. We only know for certain that the old went out and the new came in, and that where the resurrected Osiris was wont to be worshipped according to the most sacred mysteries of the Egyptian ritual, the resurrected Christ was now adored after the simple fashion of the primitive Coptic church. And now the holy island, near which it was believed no fish had power to swim or bird to fly, and upon whose soil no pilgrim might set foot without permission, became all at once the common property of a populous community. Courts, colonnades, even terraced roofs were overrun with little crude brick dwellings. A small basilica was built at the lower end of the island. The portico of the great temple was converted into a chapel and dedicated to St. Stephen. This good work, says a Greek inscription traced there by some monkish hand of the period, was done by the well-beloved of God, the abbot bishop Theodore. Of this same Theodore, whom another inscription styles the very Holy Father, we know nothing but his name. The walls hereabout are full of these fugitive records. The cross has conquered, and will ever conquer, writes one anonymous scribe. Others have left simple signatures, as, for instance, I, Joseph, in one place, and I, Theodosius of Nubia, in another. Here and there an added word or two give a more human interest to the autograph. So, in the pathetic scrawl of one who writes himself, Johannes, a slave, we seem to read the history of a life in a single line. These Coptic signatures are all followed by the sign of the cross. 
The foundations of the little basilica, with its apse toward the east and its two doorways to the west, are still traceable. We set a couple of our sailors one day to clear away the rubbish at the lower end of the nave, and found the front, a rough stone basin at the foot of a broken column. It is not difficult to guess what Philae must have been like in the days of Abbot Theodore and his flock. The little basilica, we may be sure, had a cluster of mud-domes upon the roof, and I fancy somehow that the abbot and his monks installed themselves in that row of cells on the east side of the great colonnade, where the priests of Isis dwelt before them. As for the village, it must have been just like Luxor, swarming with dusky life, noisy with the babble of children, the cackling of poultry, and the barking of dogs, sending up thin pillars of blue smoke at noon, echoing to the measured chime of the prayer-bell at morn and even, and sleeping at night as soundly as if no ghost-like mutilated gods were looking on mournfully in the moonlight. The gods are avenged now. The creed which dethroned them is dethroned. Abbot Theodore and his successors, and the religion they taught, and the simple folk that listened to their teaching, are gone and forgotten. For the Church of Christ, which still languishes in Egypt, is extinct in Nubia. It lingered long, though doubtless in some such degraded and barbaric form as it wears in Abyssinia to this day. But it was absorbed by Islamism at last, and only a ruined convent perched here and there upon some solitary height, or a few crosses rudely carved on the walls of a Ptolemaic temple, remained to show that Christianity once passed that way. End of section 35